Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, everyone, to episode 135 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me is the man who can join me in a hole anytime, my best friend, Patrick. Hey, everyone. First off, I want to say happy Veterans Day to my fellow airmen, soldiers, marines, and sailors. As a Navy vet, this day is very important to me, and I encourage everyone to thank those in your world who have given their lives to serve. Heck, if you don't have anyone in your own family or friends to thank, just thank a stranger. I promise that it will mean a lot to them. And Veterans Day is in fact the inspiration for this week's episode on Oliver Stone's 1986 Best Picture winning film, Platoon. One of the best depictions of a grunt's life in Vietnam ever to grace the big screen. So without further pause, let's just jump right on into it. And before we do that, we always give our spoiler warning. We are going to discuss this film in all of its glory completely and utterly and totally it is from 1986 so if you haven't seen it you really don't have much of an excuse at this point it is one that you should seek out but please do so before listening to this conversation all right buddy one word takeaways i know this was your first viewing so why don't you get us started 1986 depicting the vietnam war wow what was i going to expect i actually had no idea what this movie was about other than the synopsis. I mean, I knew it was about a platoon, obviously. Wow. <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't know that Oliver Stone directed it either. And I can leave or take. I can take or leave Oliver Stone. Uh, there are some movies that, that he hits me right, right square in the mouth. And then there are others that just don't at all. And so he's kind of hit or miss with me. The word that really, really just kept coming to mind for me as my as my viewing took place was the word hate. And I think it's because Oliver Stone creates this world in which I see what's meant by that word when it comes to a life in war, uh, the hate of war itself, the hate of the circumstances. But Stone and company make me feel that hate stems intimately from the guys involved in the conflict, seeing how war in particular, uh, this one, Vietnam, this supposedly war that we didn't win or did win this just this war that the united states did not like at least there was a good faction of people just were against it but how it can break a person i i as a as an audience as as someone just watching this i hated that they were there i hated that they had such a pessimistic view of the world though i mean you know it has its validity but most of all i hated seeing how this war shaped and influenced these men, um, especially, you know, our main character, Chris. And so that word just kept coming up over and over and over again. So yeah, hate was what I came up with. Wow. Well, when I saw that in the notes, I was a little worried. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. uh-oh, he hated the film. That's not a great way to start this <laughs> podcast. Oh, so much for stay positive, I guess. <laughs> stay, po- stay positive if you can. If you don't hate it. Well, you know <laughs> what's funny, Patrick, it. is that while your word was hate, um, <laughs> mine's not exactly a lot cheerier. My my word that I came out with is death. <laughs> <laughs> Happy times. <laughs> this keep, is going to be a real moment. great episode, everybody. <laughs> but this film, 
to me, has always been first and foremost an exploration of how war is death, plain and simple. From the moment Chris lands in Vietnam, it's like the clock starts ticking on his life as he knows it. And sure, the film, you know, it explores death in the context of actual battle. Plenty. There's some amazing scenes like that. But it also deals with it on a very personal and intimate level. Some men fear the certainty of it, and others don't really seem to care that it's coming for them. And whether these men make it miraculously out of Nam or not, and let's be real, for most of the soldiers that went over there, that's what the reality was. You were lucky if you got to come home. They all die inside, though, somehow, in some some sense, they are forever changed. And so Vietnam is a, a place where, at the very least, ideals go to die. And this film just kind of hit that home for me, that it was really all about death one way or the other so yeah, yeah I, ah. I i was really surprised aaron it when i watched this i mean this is a movie from 1986 you've got charlie sheen this young charlie sheen who is our our main character our protagonist and all i could think about was his comedic roles that i grew up watching you know like hot shots and and then later on watching him and you know ferris bueller's day off and just having having the the guts to take on a dramatic role i it it was honestly difficult for me at the very beginning to get into a war movie that takes place in vietnam from a bunch of guys that i i knew from the 80s because i wasn't really familiar with that i wasn't really comfortable with that but over the course of the film i really started to get probably what i consider the best depiction of vietnam life from a u.s soldier's perspective i mean we get pockets of it from other movies like forrest gump and and the like but i think that platoon really paints an honest picture of that depravity and that frustration and as you mentioned that both physical and metaphorical death of maybe the optimism of how we live our lives i mean a lot of these guys were were pulled in by force and you juxtapose that against uh, a character like chris who voluntarily does that and i think it sets up a really really interesting story yeah it really does and you know i remember this being a favorite i haven't seen it in many many years but i grew up watching this with my dad and i, I recalled um that he told me how realistic this film was and in doing a little research it seems that that's pretty much the consensus and it feels that way to me it feels very immersive because the way that they hold their weapons is correct the way that they move is correct the way that they speak is correct the, in a lot of films about military you get this kind of heightened sense of what the public thinks that we talk like if that makes sense sensationalism a little bit yeah sensationalism you know, like, I don't know how to, I don't even know of a great example at this point, but it's lingo that people that are not military associate with the military. Well, that's not in this film. This is just people who are beat down, they're in the jungle, they're in the crap, and they just don't have any Fs left to give, man. Like, this is their life, and they're counting down the days. And this is a very realistic kind of feeling film. And that totally makes me appreciate it more, even though it's a hard watch. 
because really, it's not yeah. easy. It's not easy. Well, and most of Oliver Stone's stuff that I have an issue with is that stuff that's really heavy, stuff that's just really kind of blunt in your face type things. JFK bothered me quite a bit in some of just the not absurdity, but just that kind of, hey, it's right here. Deal with it. Unapologetic kind of tone. But I think for Platoon, this fits really well, because even when you look at like a movie like Full Metal Jacket, whose back half takes place in Vietnam, it still feels a little bit kind of hypersensitive uh, and sensationalized because I think the the intent is different. I think Stone is going for I don't want people to feel great about watching this. I want them to feel as if they're watching someone actually capturing film of what's happening in this conflict and to see some of the depravity in that. Yeah, and it's it's likely because of that deeply personal connection. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but Oliver Stone was an infantryman in Vietnam and so I this didn't is know that. No. this is directly pulled from many of his experiences. In fact, he's spoken about how something extremely similar to a scene in the village uh, happened to him where Chris is shooting at the um, Viet, I guess I don't know if he's a Viet Cong, but the Vietnamese man's feet making him dance. And Chris mm-hmm. is a, Chris is on the verge of losing his, his stuff right there. That's something that Oliver Stone not necessarily directly did it like that, but something very similar to that he went through. Mm. And so he drew from those experiences in, in creating this film. I think that adds to the level of realism because it, we're getting a perspective. We're not getting someone else telling a director this is what it was like. The director needs no interpretation. It's in The pictures are in his head. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And this last week I was talking to, to one of my team members about what makes art really compelling. Um, he's a 3D artist, and, and we get into conversations about creativity. And I talked to him about some of the the writing that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on. And I, I tell him the best writing that I I sense or the best things that I see depicted on screen, whether it's big or small screen, are those things that I feel confident knowing that those who wrote them wrote them from a either personal place or a very well-researched place that when writers write what they know, that authenticity comes out and it shows in the form of storytelling. Um, I've, I've had some recent personal experiences that have been – I don't want to say tragic, but but they've had a, a significant impact on me, and I'm compelled to write about them from a therapeutic standpoint. But there's a part of me from the creative side that would say, hey, this may make some interesting storytelling in the future, and maybe it will impact somebody else who deals with the stuff that I've been dealing with. And I think there's real value in that, and that may be why Platoon, to me – as heavy as it is and as blunt as it is, leans more towards the, hey, I like this kind of Oliver Stone because it feels authentic. It doesn't feel um, it doesn't feel sensationalized. It feels very much like unapologetic, but really almost unapologetic in a kind of tragic way. It's almost as like he's saying, look, I got to show this to you and I don't want to, but you need to see this. That's kind of how I feel like he's He's directing this this whole story is I need my audience to see this because it's incredibly important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you told me offline when you were watching this film that you kind of had a little bit of a rough time 
accepting Charlie Sheen in this dramatic role, right? And right. he's our lead character, and, and we have now had the opportunity to see Charlie Sheen go through his entire career, pretty much. So we've seen a lot more comedic Charlie Sheen. We've seen mm-hmm. crazy wacko Charlie Sheen. Right. Um, so going back to this character, and that being a little bit of a challenge for you, I'm wondering – how did you see Chris? Let's talk about him first. And particularly, I want to start with his narration, because that's something that's very specific to the film, mm-hmm. is that it uses Chris's journal entries and letters home to tell parts of the story and to give us a way to see what Chris is thinking and feeling, perhaps without having forced dialogue show us that. And that's that's probably pretty accurate because I don't I know that I've been on deployments and we don't talk about stuff like this with our fellow um, soldiers or sailors. And we, it's just not something we sit around and have conversations about. You know, we want to talk about fun things or we want to you know, hang out in the drug hut or whatever, play guitar. Right. So how did the narration and going through this experience with Chris's eyes work for you? It was very helpful to me because I picked up on several things. Some may be unintentional. One, um, the fact that he's writing to his grandmother, which isn't something you see depicted when a soldier is writing home. He's usually writing home to his girlfriend or maybe to a parent. And so that gave me a little insight without him giving too much away on possibly his relationships with people. Maybe he he doesn't have someone back home. He doesn't have someone that he's intimately connected to from a spousal or a boyfriend-girlfriend way, which is important. Um so that kind of takes away from the from the Hollywood type tropes of being at war, you know, writing back to your best girl. I also found that as we get in, there's an arc of frequency that goes down when it comes to hearing him write these letters. And this is what I don't know if it's intentional or not, but he narrates quite a bit. We get a lot of that near the beginning. And a little bit near the end, and then it sort of dies off in the middle. Like when I feel like, I feel like his character with when when he starts growing as a character, well, when he starts moving, I won't say growing, but when he starts getting immersed and getting exposed to the life in Vietnam, his letters become less frequent. And even when they are there, they're a lot more terse. They're a lot more, um, ne- not negative, but they're a lot less optimistic. Like where I feel like he starts out very innocent, he his voice, his writing voice to his grandmother, I think matures over the course of the film. And that absence in that big chunk of the film, the big second to third act is significant because I feel like he's lost his voice at this point. Like he doesn't know who he is. Like he has, even at the beginning of the film, he doesn't really know who he is. You know, he's just, he's quit school and he's like, I didn't, I wasn't learning anything. It seemed like a waste. So I decided to try this. He was trying to find himself but I felt like he even got more lost because he couldn't figure out what the reality was of, of what he was doing or, or who he was. And I feel like that reflected in the terseness of his letters and the less frequency of those letters. And if that was intentional, I thought that was a great move by, by Stone and company. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, I, I would assume that it wasn't just an accident. Um, and frankly, he's also going through a, a lot more time in the jungle at that point in the middle of the film. So Generally, when we see him writing letters or narrating letters, it's it's pretty much on point with his time and where he is physically speaking right. in the film. Right. 
um, he would be writing letters when he's at home. Well, not when he's at home. Sorry, he'd be writing letters when he's back on base or in camp, uh, etc. Or when he's kind of on his way out on a patrol, but not necessarily when he's in the thick of it. So I think that both of those probably played into it. I, I really enjoy him in this role, and I love it. I, I mean, I think he nails it. I think he brings a perfect sense of that idealism I talked about dying at the very beginning. I love the scene of him arriving when he shows up and he's passing these very hardened soldiers, people with um, scars on their face and just a look of, you know, deadness in their eyes. And they're on their way out, right? They're are hopefully on their way out. And here he is arriving and with no way to know what he's no way to expect what he's about to, to go through. And I think through the letters we do, we get a great progression of his character um, that kind of parallels what we see on screen um, in his actions. And we see what is important to him, what he's talking about. Um, we get to hear him, you know, initially telling his parents about what it's like and then saying, you know, I think this was a big mistake and um, and then coming to kind of make some realizations there towards the end of the film and some some has some genuine opinions about the war in America and beyond. Um, and I think that that is a great way for us to he almost serves his letters almost serve as a cipher. In a way, like, I mean, I, I guess the character does as well, but it shows us what not just this character is writing home, but probably what so many grunts are writing home at that time, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah. I think I think it was great to get to go through that. I love the device. I think it worked out really, really well. Mm -hmm. What do you think ultimately is the effect of this war on Chris, though? Because he does make it out alive and you know, that's a very specific choice. Um, but do you think that he's forever changed? Absolutely. Uh, in, in the world of writing, something that I'm learning is that most stories end with this thing called the new normal, where our main character has gone through X, Y, or Z, and something has changed significantly. And Platoon is, is pretty obvious in this. But I definitely think that Chris sees the world as a lot bigger beyond just the twenties and post-college or dropping out of college and war seems to be the best thing for him. I think what he finds is a truth that even when you feel like you're doing something that is honorable and worthy, it can come back to make you feel less so. Like there's a part of me that feels like, yes, he got out alive, but that's what he's celebrating. Not that he did good. I mean, does, do you think he, I don't think he even thinks that he did any kind of good in Vietnam. I think by the time he got through it, he, he said, you know what, this wasn't worth it. And maybe he's seeing what he might've been hearing up to that point by the, the hippie movement of those who were protesting the war that he now sees it for what it is. And I think he has a better understanding and honestly is probably a better subject matter expert when it comes to that, not just because he's been in the field, but because he's felt that he's seen the change in himself, whether for bad or good, he's seen how the war can legitimately turn a person from being optimistic and not even patriotic, patriotic, but really optimistic about 
treating the world in, in a certain way and feeling like what he's doing is a good thing when in actuality it's not. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And I think that it is an intentional metaphor as well for America because he is learning that America is being divided as well from within about the war. I mean, it, it serves as this really interesting piece of commentary because the Chris is dealing with two fights, two battles here, and he's, he's dealing with the actual war against the Viet Cong, which is terrifying, uh, fighting them on their own turf and their jungles. I mean, those, those scenes in the jungle are just downright scary, man. I mean, when I'm talking about realism, like you feel that tension and fear in that jungle, like you've no idea what's coming from what angle or whether a snake's going to randomly like slide across your boot. I mean, right. whew, or somebody's going to pop up or you're going to touch a tripwire and be blown to smithereens. You really feel all that fear. And Chris is fighting that battle, but he's also fighting this war that he now has been plopped into within the platoon. Mm -hmm. And he can't escape that. And I think he realizes that going back to America is a very similar experience. Because he's going to be f going back to a country that is split. And this is a country that was going through the hippie movement, like you said. It's it's the drug scenes in this film are meant mm -hmm. to parallel the experience that America was having. It's kind of like this, forget about it. Let's just not think about it. Let's just be high and be happy and pretend nothing is going wrong in the world for a little while. And Chris is dealing with all of that, man. And so, you know, it's a, it, it's psychologically... It definitely has to affect him. And we don't even get to see what happens when he gets home, whether he's welcomed back with open arms or, you know, knowing what we know, it probably just gets worse for him from here. And it's, it's so tragic because you know, he's given up that college education to go do this. I mean, when you, when you hear that line about him volunteering and dropping out of school, it's, it just makes your heart sink. You're like, no, but no, but like, why? <laughs> That's so, so sad. Um, and I really like his character quite a bit. I do too. Um, so moral strife is is at the heart of Platoon. And I think that the cast really walks this tightrope between good and evil quite well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Even Behringer's character, who's downright menacing and scary as can be, has enough qualities about him that make you question the possible – positivity in his act some of his actions mm -hmm. um so it poses these questions of conscience at almost every turn which i love watching explored did any character's journey impact you more than another and i mean we've already talked about chris so let's let's go into the other characters at this point um i think king was probably one of the characters that stood out to me and he reminded me a lot of uh, when i was doing prison ministry several years ago i would run into a lot of folks who were who were lifers and seeing how they adapted to the life on the inside because they knew they were never leaving. They actually, to me, um, seemed to be the most stable, like those that didn't cause a lot of trouble. They'd sort of fallen into routines, and that was their world. King reminded me of a guy who was finishing up a long prison sentence. Or not long, but but a pretty decent one. Like he was at the very end of it. I think, I don't know if it was him that was saying this, but there was a conversation right before right before Chris talks about when he mentions that he volunteered, where they were asking him what day he was on, 
and it was like you know like day 30 or something like that it's like oh man i remember day 30 uh that was crazy and king and chris have a couple of great conversations where i think you see that seasoned character in him like he has seen all this and he's at the tail end of that and i love more than anything i think i love the fact that king and chris pair up pretty pretty well almost like a like a a red and an andy dufresne at the very beginning and where i think king isn't protecting him necessarily but i think he trusts king and king is a guy who feels like he's the most stable of any of these guys because of what he's seen, maybe because of where he comes from. And I feel like he's sort of this quiet leader among this group of men, not everybody, but maybe this pocket. And I think Chris leans on him and he trusts him because of that kind of stuff. Man, that's good stuff. Um, I love that you can take that and kind of marry that to the experience you had with the prison ministry. It makes total sense when you're, when you're talking about it, because you're right. He's, he is kind of there for good. And you see that difference of attitude in raw. I believe his name is Raja. I can't remember his name. Raw. Is is that what they call him? We'll call him raw. We'll call him raw for now. Uh, at the end of the film, when Chris is leaving and, you know, he's just sitting there beating his chest. Like he, there, there's some guys that are just, they, they get to the point where you can't go anywhere else. This has become what they are. And what they know. And they, they pretty much know that it's going to end here at some point, but they can't leave because they couldn't exist anywhere else. Um, and I love that King is a little bit like that in a way, but in a, in a much more grounded manner, like in that mentoring kind of way, um, bringing along Chris and, and not being so hardened that he's treats other people as if they're nothing. Um, for me, it's Elias. I can't get, I mean, Willem Dafoe is incredible, uh, in this role, I think. Um, up until the acting and the death scene, man, I, there, there's something, this is, I'm going to go on a tangent. There, there is a, this is the part that I, this is what stops Platoon from being a five-star film for me. Okay. Is there are a couple of moments where Stone gets cute and he tries to be Francis Ford Coppola. Or he tries to be Kubrick. And for the most part, he nails the Kubrick aesthetic. There are, there's some beautiful cinematography in this film. I mean, there are some shots that I would love to just put up on a desktop wallpaper. A moment where one of the soldiers is turning his back and walking away and the whole frame is filled with the burning village. That's an incredible shot. There's some great helicopter shots in this film. And you know, we love our helicopters and war shots. Um, so the cinematography is generally great, but then there's this, this over the top. And I, and I say Francis Ford Coppola because it reminds me of like Apocalypse Now, that de- devil devolving into absolute chaos. And like at this point, I, I know the, I know what, uh, Oliver Stone's trying to get across here. He's trying to get us across that Tom Berenger's character, um, Sergeant Barnes has lost his mind and he's now kind of crossed over into absolute madness. But the way that scene is shot drives me crazy. Did it bother you at all? And and, and I, I was linking to this because the way that Defoe ends up dying is, to me, so exaggerated that it takes away – it takes the only thing that takes me out of the realism of this film. Yeah, it didn't bother me, but I've seen it done before. And by before, I mean in a film that came later. There was a, a scene in The Hurt Locker 
that seemed to deviate significantly from the rest of the movie. The rest, most of the movie felt grounded. It felt like I was boots on the ground with these characters. And then there's this one scene overnight. It's like, wow, now we're in an action movie. And I think this feels like that. It feels like you have this melodramatic death that it's, it's making its point. Yes. Yes. Barnes is nuts. He did it. And everybody sees that Elias is not dead and that he's being killed off. So no, you're a liar. There could have been a better way. Um, I think if you had not done it in slow motion, if you'd let it be quick and maybe left some ambiguity as the platoon was leaving on the helicopter. So like, wait, was that a lie? It was. a. Oh, my gosh. And then they put the two and two together. I think you'd still get that dramatic impact and you'd still maintain Barnes's insanity factor but not be so over the top with the slow motion and the, you know, whatever. And the fact that that moment, that scene became, I guess, one of the quintessential photos from the, from the movie, you know, really tells you something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But uh, anyway, uh, back to my Elias here being one of the people that I really kind of connected with the most. I I love, I love he and Behringer's juxtaposition because they show two characters who very much display the problems with the Vietnam War and America's inability to win and and two different styles of thinking when it comes to how to win. And it's, it's interesting because it actually kind of mirrors the problems we've had with the war on terror and trying to figure out how to attack that problem and and how to go about that right we've had issues with waterboarding and all kinds of torture and terror or torture tactics to combat the terrorists and so at some point what Behringer's character is proposing in theory becomes necessary if you're truly going to stop what's happening you know that there that is a an understandable place to get to and elias gives us the opposite of that he gives us that hope the belief that the system can work when everything is telling you that the system is falling apart and the system does not work uh, but his absolute dedication to it is inspiring and i love him because he is such a fantastic leader uh, I, I, you know, I gravitate towards that when I see it in films and I just thought to myself immediately, you know, you're like, I would go to fight with this guy. Like he's the man I want in charge of me, but I want him in charge of me because of not necessarily his tactical acumen, but because of how he treats people. And on the flip side, I would go to war with Sergeant Barnes in a heartbeat too, because I think he'd keep me alive. Because I think he knows what has to be done in order to win the day. And so I, I just love the comparison between these two characters. But ultimately, my heart hurts when we lose Elias because he's killed off by that idealism. He's one of the few characters that goes to Nam and retains it, and it still kills him, man. Yeah. When I when I look at Barnes and Elias next door to each other, I think that – not as a straight parallel, but maybe in terms of its dynamic, I'm reminded of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. I just finished Steve Jobs' biography, 
And I think that there's a lot of similarity in the way in which two individuals approach the same thing, where you have these two leaders, you have these two guys who see the Vietnam War that's happening in the same way to them both, but they see it differently. One sees it with a sense of hopeful eyes and one sees it with a sense of survival. And both are right and both are wrong. The question is, and I don't know that Stone explores this at all. I think he just puts it out there for us to ask, but can they coexist? And I think the answer, well, he answers it. He says, no, <laughs> at least according to Barnes, you cannot, they cannot coexist. One ultimately will win out over another, but does that make it right? And I think that's the question that Stone's asking is, would Barnes be justified in the action that he took because of the, while we might gravitate towards Elias's hope, it can, to Barnes, it's a liability because Barnes is like, look, this works. My way works. That's my reality. And it's not just him being a hard nose. It's him saying, We've, we're here to fight. We're not here to show off the American dream. This is not why we're here. And in a lot of ways, I think he, re he reminds me of Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky's um, book where Raskolnikov feels like he is extraordinary. Like he's convinced that he has this idea and not just an idea, but he feels like he is this extraordinary person. And he even, and, and the book explores that, like, what does it do to a man who sees himself in this way as eccentric as he is? If he really believes this, he has this false sense of reality or this distorted view of reality. He can convince people around him that it's true. Steve Jobs has been uh, has been known to to have that reality distortion field. Uh, Walter Isaacson talked about that in the book, and I think Barnes does that too enough to convince at least a number of his soldiers to follow along with him and really create this division. I mean, because you have a platoon of men who are there doing the they're they're asked to do the same job, but they're being asked to do it differently based on the leadership that's there, and so I, I like that contradiction of those two and like you i was sad to see elias go but i think it elevated barnes's character a lot more because of that absolutely and then of course the lieutenant throws a third wrench in all of this because back to that realism this is a reality junior officers are put in charge in all branches of the service and this is we're talking an o3 okay so this is a decently ranked officer and I love how when he shows up, man, he looks like he's brand new. He looks like he has a baby face and he's this stupid, just stupid grin on his face. He can't get off of it. Man, by the end of the movie, boy, you can see the difference in him. And he, he even says, he's like, I just don't, I don't care anymore. Like, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you want. I don't care if you're going to die. It doesn't matter to me. Like, this is, it just happens. But this is a guy that is supposed to be able to take control and to take charge. And we see numerous times in the film, like, he can't do that. It's Barnes and it's Elias. And these are your enlisted characters, right? And these are, it's, it, that's always interesting to me. And it comes up when we talk about pay scales and things like that, because I've lived this life where I've been the enlisted person that is making decisions and knows how to do things far better than the officer. But the officer has a degree. And it just shows you how much that doesn't matter out there. And when you throw him in the mix with Barnes and Elias, he becomes an extra liability because 
he doesn't even really take a side. He just kind of gets in the way. And the men have no one to follow other than who they want to follow, right? Who who matches my personal system or level of ideals. So I really enjoy the way that it's structured, having those three people and letting us see all of them and their different kind of leadership styles. So thematically, it's really a rich commentary in the, on the war in general. Um, and like we said, we, it talks a lot about what's going back on at home in America. Did anything we haven't mentioned already stick out to you as like a point that Stone might have been trying to get across, like a message he was trying to send? Um, the big thing that I picked up on was how you can't take America out of the man. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that in this war within a war, within this platoon, you still have factions of people. I mean, you have a group of black men who still have the same ideology when standing next to white soldiers. You still have those guys who live and die by the pipe. And you still have those who are patriotic and optimistic about why they're there. And I think that what Stone is doing is, one, showing us representation of the United States away from home. But he's also showing us that the, the fact that the influence of the United States comes out even on foreign soil, sometimes more in an id type way when it comes to a personality where we have more heightened guerrilla type personalities more more raw more uh, dangerous i guess you could say i feel like we have a lot more subtlety if we were to look at these same character types stateside at this point they would be a lot less aggressive and so i think when you put them into a place like the vietnam war who they are just becomes a lot more amplified so he may not be saying anything i think he's giving us a visual depiction of what the Vietnam War in particular does to a person's personality. It either amplifies what's already there, potentially changes them, but nevertheless, war doesn't bring people together. I think that would be the other message is that war doesn't bring people together, um, at least not intentionally. Um, it, it brings people to the same place, but not necessarily unified for one ideal. You still have the factions that exist. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that 100%. And I think – Another comparison or parallel that I see is played out in a couple different lines of dialogue. At one point, Barnes says, and this is definitely how he feels, uh, but he says, there's the way it ought to be and there's the way it is. And that is certainly what his marching orders are when he's working in Vietnam and uh, you know allow him to go to the places that he goes um, in his decision making. But there's a comparable piece of dialogue where um, the captain or general, I can't remember who it was at the time, Colonel, they go to Barnes or they go to him, but Lias does, and he's telling him about the murder that Barnes has committed. And he tells him straight up, okay, if that happened, we'll deal with it. But right now, I don't care. I need you in the field. Leadership refuses to deal with a clear charge of 
of murder because they need people in the field and we need to do this thing right now. And I felt like that was also a bit of a commentary on American politics and just the way that we as a country will tend to allow things that maybe we say we're against for short-term gain. Um, and that's really what's happening right here is they're willing to forget about it because they need that man to go out in the field. And it's, it's pretty disgusting because it's like using people to me, you know, and in the sense, what he's saying is we're going to court martial you later. So in a little bit, we're actually going to hold you accountable, but first we're going to make you go out there and do our dirty fighting for us. Um, and maybe you'll die and then we won't have to court martial you. We'll save some money. And it feels like kind of the way that certain systems in America work even to this day. Um, and so that kind of connected with me a little bit. Well, why do you think that the soldiers resort to metaphors? Uh, the jungle and the enemy it contains, they, they call the, a beast. Um, do you think this has anything to do with them like trying to process their reality or what's the reasoning for that? So I'm not trying to intentionally go back to, to my faith, but I, I think that when I look at how Jesus spoke, when he spoke in parables, it was, he, I, I, I was going to say that it was so that people could understand better, but that's not necessarily the case because there were those who didn't understand the parables and he would, he would reply, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he wasn't being cryptic necessarily, but I think when it came to parables, when it comes to metaphor, the fact is throughout most of biblical history, even when we define certain things like the Trinity, we use analogous things. Like when we talk about God, we call him the father. So that when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the son. And so there's a comparative statement there. You know that one is related to the other because of those words, father and son. And I think that in the same way, these soldiers are trying to understand, they're trying to grasp this chaotic world that they live in. And I think by attaching words like beast to it, not necessarily like spiritual, like the beast, you know, but like an actual beast, an animal, this thing that lives in the jungle, because that's where they are. It's this threat, this danger that they may not be able to overcome. And I think by attaching a name like beast to their experience, to that, to that world that they're living in, I think it helps them maybe not understand the reality, but hold on to it to grasp it a little bit more tangibly. Because if you can grasp something tangibly, if you can understand something a little bit better, I think it helps you mentally be able to, uh, to cope with it. And so it might be a coping mechanism more than anything else. But I think that analogy has always been at the center point of, of humanity because it helps us understand something that might not be understandable. And a war like the war in Vietnam Oliver Stone really gets us to believe that it's a, it's a war that we can't understand. Why are we here? Why are we fighting this? How come it's so hard? Why do people have to be here to do this? And those are questions that are asked back in the States. And, you know, using, using analogous words like that, I think really help emphasize that, that, um, ambiguousness that these soldiers are feeling. Yeah, I can buy that. I mean, I definitely know, just from my time overseas that 
you'll do anything you can to cope and to change your reality in your mind, even for a moment, even from a second, um, or to find a way to come to grips with what you're facing and the changing situations that you're, you're coming upon when these things are so different, right? It's such, it's hard to describe. And that's what I love about films like platoon or full metal jacket that allow civilians who will never ever experience this to maybe get an idea and a sense of what it's like to go through this. It it truly is mind altering completely and utterly. And so it's no surprise to me that they're assigning words like beast to the jungle uh, because that's what it is to them. That's what it feels like. It feels like the most scary thing that they could ever imagine. Um, So you're going to try and find a way to, kind of comprehend that um, and put a, a name to it um, and put a, put a symbol to it that you can potentially attack or fight, right? Like a, a beast is something more, I don't know, substantial, more phys- uh, more cohesive. It's not, you know, the jungle is very sprawling and, and enormous. <laughs> and, uh, and a beast seems like something you could potentially defeat in essence. Um, what about, Barnes, because he he does this too. He says, "I am reality." At some point, um, what does that mean? You're asking me, the first timer. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know, and I've seen it several yeah, times. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if, if I could speculate, I would say that this is his world, and it really echoes back to that reality distortion field. That if you say something enough and you believe something enough, um, you're gonna believe it. It's going to be your reality, and if you're convincing enough and you have that much pull over a group of men, group of people, they're going to believe that too, and it's going to force their behaviors to change. I think at this point when he says that, I think he believes that he is and this is his reality, and his reality is everybody's reality. I think it's the beginning point of his break with actual reality, but I think it also – paints a a really interesting picture of the toxicity that the Vietnam War has on someone, that it can make your actual reality be transformed because of this world around you. I mean, you're in a, I've never been overseas in a world like this, but when you're in a constant state of being in a jungle or then moving into a village and you're being asked to burn it and you move then to another jungle and this is all you know for a year of constant boom, 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 you're not you're away from life as you know it. Heck yeah. I think he's been in it long enough and I don't think we're given an indication of how long he's been in there. I I would imagine longer than a year. I mean, I think he's been there quite a while, but this is the world that he knows and therefore it's his reality. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I think he's also saying that his way and his belief is, the only way that we can exist Abs- or the only way that he can Absolute. exist. Yeah. Um, it's like a complete and utter uh, worshiping of his way of thinking but I th- at this yeah, point. Yeah, I would think of it less like worshiping and more like a submission to yeah, to, his, to this reality. I don't think there's hope in what he's saying. I don't think he's very being prideful in what he's saying. He's going, look, this is my cross to bear, guys. I am reality. And mm-hmm. – you're going to follow me because I I believe that what I'm experiencing and what this is to me is what it is to you. Hmm. Yeah. 
Well, the, a couple of little little things before we move on to the connecting point. I just want to point out, I was a shocked completely all over again when I saw who all was in this cast. So Johnny Depp is in this movie. I don't know if you noticed him. Yeah, he was. Yeah, Did he you? was given the. Uh, he was the translator, right? Yeah, weird learner. He's barely he's a it, learner man, he's of there. the language, you know. <laughs> uh, John C. McGinley. Yeah. Uh, I did. Dr. Perry Cox just, from Scrubs. so weird. So yeah. weird, especially with the character he yeah, plays yeah, here. Sure. Because he's kind of the butt of a joke, and he is just trying to follow people. He's kind of like riding Barnes's coattails. Um, I like the arc that his character gets. Mm, me too. Because I love that they call him a super lifer. That's hilarious to me. I like bust out laughing every time because let me tell you, there are people like that in every branch of the service and they are identifiable very easily and we all make fun of them. <laughs> um, and that is, that is how he is. Um, and the way that he kind of gets his comeuppance at the end of this film is fantastic. Although you wouldn't wish it on anybody to have to stay there and potentially die. Uh, after what he does in such a cowardly manner, and then to kind of write it off as heroism, and to be told, "Hey, you're not going home. You're you're going to be taking up this other guy's platoon and squad." Oh, um, it's just like, oh, it's great to see his face. So, anything else stick out to you? No, I think that was it. Um, I think there. Well, no, I'll say this. There's one moment that I think really put me into the thick of uh, of the movie. It was near the very beginning, and it's when um, it's when Chris is on watch and he gives up it's it's not his turn you know he hands it off to what's his name i can't junior is it junior yeah i think it's junior i could be wrong anyway so he goes to sleep and then he wakes up and you see him look out in the distance and the camera shoots out in the distance then back to him shoots out again you see something move and back to him and then you slowly start seeing these these vks coming into view and then all heck breaks loose. It's like, you know, whatever. I I remember watching that and going, Oh my gosh, I could never do this. I'm so glad the draft is not in effect right now because I would probably, I would be the guy peeing his pants in the midst of this. And yeah, I would be Chris only without the voluntary, you know, enlistment into this thing. Yeah, man, I, I couldn't do it either. You know, my watching this with my roommate, Kevin, who was also in the Navy along with me, not serving with me in the same place or anything. And we both were looking at each other going, you know, this is why we joined the Navy. So we could like shoot from afar because I, I couldn't face this. I, I have a respect for those that are able to do this. And it's interesting because I really enjoy war films. I really, really do. There's something that impacts me strongly about the genre, but I'm increasingly turning into a pacifist the more and maybe the more i watch them the more i see reality out in the world the more i struggle with war in general as a thing as a means of solving any kind of conflict no matter what the conflict is it's just it's an impossible place that we're in in a world full of you know broken people um, but it's, it's it's interesting to explore through movies like this the last thing i wanted to mention is my father was in vietnam and when I talked to him about Nam, he would never speak about it. And the, the two things that I wanted to point out here that I do remember him talking about are the two situations that occurred. One was he told me a story about how his second tour went. When he was finally done with that first tour, he went to go and go away, go home. And they told him 
on the tarmac where the plane was about to leave that they would give him enough money, whatever the amount was, it was enough money to buy a brand new uh, convertible Corvette. It was a ton of money at the time to sign up and go back for like two more years or something. And he said he without hesitation said no because he knew in his heart of hearts that if he went back to Nam, he would never come home. Like that that hits me and that that's the feeling I got from this movie is you know backs up what my dad told me. And that's part of why I feel it's so realistic because that's how these guys felt. That hopelessness, that belief and that understanding yeah. really that your your odds aren't going to ever be in your right. favor. The other thing is I asked him once, only once because this is the answer I got. Did you ever kill anybody? Um, and we get that one scene where, where Chris makes his first kill and it's, oh man, the way that he reacts to it, um, is, is hard to watch. And my dad's answer to that question was, I don't know. And I don't want to know. I sure shot at a lot of them and I tried to, but it's not something I want to think about. Wow. And I was like, wow. Okay. I, I understand. Right. I understand. And, and he confirmed like so much of this war, like you were shooting into jungles. You have no idea whether you hit these guys or not sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's across the bayer. Like even not knowing whether he's killed somebody or not, that has stuck with him for his entire life. And he's been able to, unable to completely shake that. So it, it forever has changed the person that he is when would be, you know, after that fact. So yeah. Um, just some, some crazy stuff. So, all right. Well, if that is all, I say we can just go ahead and move on into our connecting. Sounds points. good. And I am going to let you go first. Thank you, sir. The the scene that stood out to me was the uh, the whole sequence of the burning of the village. And it starts with soldiers coming in. You hear pigs screaming and he's like, here, piggy, piggy. And bam, just shoots that thing up. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I love animals. And that was just wow. But the i think that starting from that moment and leading into just the constant barrage of this is this is where the word my, you know my my one word takeaway comes in there's nothing but hate that's driving this i mean everybody's guilty until proven innocent there are women and children being pulled out and being just wrestled down uh there are men that are being smoked out with grenades um you mentioned earlier the scene with with chris getting the guy to dance like he's some kind of cowboy and the whole thing just culminates with the showdown between between barnes and elias and it's at this moment during this whole entire sequence that these guys don't feel like soldiers they feel like mercenaries they feel like a band of bandits who are just out to kill people and they have no remorse for anybody that's in their way. Nobody is innocent. Nobody needs to be innocent. It's all about these are the bad guys because just who they are. And so for me, that made me sad because at the very end of this, I think it's Elias that says this isn't who we are, or maybe it's maybe it's the uh, maybe it's the junior officer who says, "I'm, you know, if I find out that somebody's 
illegally shot someone, you know, there's a court martial in, in place or whatever. But the whole tone of this is where I think the real, the real impact happened for me because I, I, I really, I hated myself for watching all this. I was like, this, this is what really happened. Like there was no, there was no mercy at all. And where Stone gets it right is he says, look, war doesn't make heroes. Sometimes it makes villains. And in the case of Vietnam, a war that felt very futile to a lot of folks, including those that were serving because they were they had to. These guys were not just doing what they had to do. They were doing what they wanted to do because they had no reason to do otherwise. I mean, oh, so you're going to you know, you're going to you're going to court martial me. You're going to send me to 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 army jail. I'm in the I'm in the woods, man. I'm in the jungle. What are you going to do? And then the the scene ends with them essentially just burning everything. And you see this great shot that you mentioned of this burning village in the background and all these soldiers carrying children and comforting women as they're walking away. And I'm going, what? That doesn't make sense to me. You have just destroyed their livelihood. You've just destroyed everything that they have worked so hard. You destroyed their living. They can't survive now. What are you? What are they going to do now? And I was, I was really mad. I was like, this is, this is ridiculous, for because of the fact that you didn't believe that someone said that the, the VKs were staying here or whatever. Oh, it was frustrating, and it really did pack an emotional punch because I felt all that stuff while I was watching this, and I was like, ugh, why, why, why? So that was my connected point. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's harrowing to watch. It's almost as bad or worse probably than some of the battle scenes because of how innocent those folks are. Whether they've actually allowed the VC to come through there or not, most likely they didn't have a choice if they did come through there. Um, and it's, it's all about assigning an enemy because you can't find one. <laughs> you can't find the enemy that you're actually supposed to be fighting and actually eliminate him. So you create a new one so you can feel like you've been successful at something. It's awful, just awful. Um, and I, and it did happen obviously, um, from tons of reports and obviously Oliver Stone's memory yeah. even. So yeah, it's rough. What about you? Well, uh, for me, you know, I, I just have to, I, I don't, I don't know if this was a connecting point, um, as much as it was just something I just want to, reiterate for people who may not have seen the film recently but i really enjoy the way that this film uh, enjoys the wrong word i appreciate the artistic way in which the film wraps up there's a shot of chris specifically when he's flying away in the helicopter and you can see tears briefly coming down uh, amidst the eye black and the you know, soot and scars and blood and everything caked all over his face. And it's when he's looking at Raw and Raw is out there just beating on his chest and like a warrior. Um, and he's looking at the devastation of the bombs and everyone that has died, both the VC and they've, the ones that they've kind of funneled into the this area. And then also his own servicemen who were caught in that blast. It's just... Dead body after dead body. He says, it's, it's the last bit of his narration. He writes or says whatever. 
I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. The enemy was in us. The war is over for me now, but it will always be there the rest of my days, as I'm sure Elias will be, fighting with Barnes for what Raw called possession of my soul. There are times since I've felt like a child, born of those two fathers. But be that as it may, those of us who did make it have an obligation to build again, to reach and te- or to teach others what we know, and to try with what's left of our lives to find a goodness and a meaningness to this life. And that is impactful to me, because if this film was just showing us the crap that happened, then what's the point? But this last paragraph, one of the characters that goes through so much life-altering stuff, it's fantastic for me because it feels authentic. And he's acknowledging that he will forever have PTSD and deal with this in a way that, like I told you, my dad has to deal with things. But there's there's like one or two sentences that say, have hope and we can learn from this and we can change and we can make better decisions next time. And I think without those lines, then Platoon is a completely different film. But if Chris can leave Vietnam and have even the slightest ability to feel that and want that, then there's a chance that maybe we don't have to replicate this scenario again. And so that's, that's why it's so That's great, man. That's great. Awesome. Well, our Veterans Day tribute episode is in the books, and uh, it's time to be done for this week. And I we ended on a good Patrick. note. And we ended with a positive note, you know? We did. We made up for hate and death <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> As we laugh at those two words. Oh my gosh, we're sadistic. We're barns, man. We're barns. <laughs> Well, if you would like to talk to me on social media, <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film, or I'm active in our Facebook discussion group. You can find the links to that in the show notes or on our website, or as always, by just typing it in a search bar in Facebook itself, the Feelin' Film discussion group. We'd love to have you come be a part of the awesome community that is being built there and talking about movies all day, every day, seven days a week. Uh, I have no announcement to make, Patrick. I had a little note here that I would announce the winner of our November's Donor Pick episode poll, the one that we're going to do on a movie about cooking. But frankly, I'm sorry. I've been busy this weekend, and I haven't done the tally yet. So I'll do that soon and announce that on social media. So there's another reason to follow us on well, social I'm gonna media. Follow we're I'm going to be... follow you just to find that out. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people yeah, find I'm you? I'm usually uh, popping around Facebook and Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S. P-A-T-C-H. Uh, you can find me in one of those two places. Be sure to at me or tag me and uh, just kind of drag me into the conversation. I, I love being a part of that. Next week, we are going to be kicking off a franchise double feature over the next two weeks with Creed next Sunday, Monday, recording Sunday, and actually dropping on Monday as we always do so that we can get ready for its very much anticipated sequel, Creed 2. So be sure to tune in for that. We're really excited about it. Absolutely. So come back next week. Come back week after that. And uh, just make us a regular part of your week. That would be awesome. Until next time, keep feeling film. Keep feeling film.